0: Hello, and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast produced by the ABA section of Dispute Resolution. I'm one of your hosts, Adam Martin, and today I'll be speaking with a panel of guests who served on the Elder Abuse and Neglect Screening Guidelines Task Force, who developed a set of guidelines for mediators to identify abuse and neglect for elders who are parties to mediation. With me today is Shanika Pope, Monica Lichtenberger, Sue Bronson, and Zaina Zumea. Shanika Pope is a licensed clinical social worker. She currently serves as Director of Guardianship and a mediator for Montgomery County Probate Court. Monica Lichtenberger is an elder care mediator and trainer. Her 24 years of experience includes positions as a state-certified long-term care ombudsperson, nurse manager for two acute medical departments with primarily senior patients, and a spiritual minister to seniors and long-term care facilities. Sue Bronson is the Co-Chair of the ACR Elder Justice Initiative on Elder Caring Coordination, and she's a mediator and trainer with over 35 years of experience. And finally, Zaina Zumeda is a graduate of the University of Michigan Law School and is a longtime mediator and national trainer of mediators based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So thank you all for coming on the podcast. This is the biggest group that I've had the pleasure of interviewing, so it's been the longest introduction, but Thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure to have you all here. Thank
1: you. Thank you for having us.
0: So because this is a panel discussion, um, we're going to have more of a round table um, and everyone kind of, um, you know, talking in sequence. Um, And I'd like to pose the first question to everyone and we can kind of go around and introduce everyone a little bit more. Um, So the question we asked just to get a little bit more of your background is um, how did you get involved in ADR and mediation specifically? And uh, what drew you to elder law in your background?
1: I'll go first. Um, so I serve as guardianship director for Montgomery County Probate Court. And our judge, um, the Honorable Judge McCollum, wanted to have in-house mediators. And so I, along with several other um, staff members and um, magistrates um, took the training at the Supreme Court, which Zena Zemida was our trainer. And so we wanted this in-house. Um, so that is kind of how um, I was introduced to this lovely world of mediation and elder
0: mediation. Great. Thank you, Janika. Um, so Monica, would you like to go next?
2: I think like most mediators, people tell you you'd be good at this. And so I love problem solving and working with people to come up with creative options. And when I moved from Europe, uh, from being in nursing, I needed a career change. And so I went into dispute resolution and seniors, they have my heart. I just really enjoy working with them and listening to their stories. And it's just a very, uh, just love the field.
0: Sue?
2: I started in mediation
3: when there were only two books on mediation. So I could you an idea of um, how early that was in the process and that I heard about it and I just said, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. Um, and then family tragedy happened. And so a family member became disabled. And that's when I learned more about guardianship and have been in the field of uh,
4: elders uh, ever since.
0: Thank you. And uh, Zaina, last but not least.
4: So, um, I actually got interested in mediation because I was working at the University of Michigan um, Institute of Gerontology, uh, doing training and um, advocacy. And two of the professors, two of the faculty members were having a dispute. And so I and another um, another colleague were asked if we could mediate that dispute. Um, I had a background in labor law, labor negotiations. And so I knew about mediation. So we went in and and we mediated the dispute and it worked and everybody was happy. And then I found out my colleague really didn't like it because it was so much conflict. And I loved it. And I thought, whoa, maybe this is what I should do. So I I, uh, talked with a couple of my law professors. Um, who encouraged me and um, ended up doing mediation and of course doing it in the elder arena was a natural having come from from that background.
0: Well thank you for that for all, their, of, all of your backgrounds. It's, um, it's always fascinating to me to hear how people uh, got into mediation and ADR. It seems like so many people um, they just it just kind of fell into their laps and they fell in love with it right away. Um, so it's great to hear that you know, it's, a, it's a passion and an interest for all of you. Um, so I guess to the topic um, that we're all here to talk about, the elder abuse and neglect screening guidelines. Um, I think you all served on the task force that worked on uh, developing those guidelines. And I think, um, if memory serves, the final version came out about a month and a half ago in early June. Is that right? Correct. So look, looking back, how did the, the task force kind of come about? What was the, the purpose behind it and how did you all get involved?
4: Well, I, I actually had been wanting um, to have some screening uh, tools and guidelines for a very long time and uh, frankly, tried to convince as many other people as I could to uh, create a task force. And when no one took me up on it, <laughs> I realized that probably I was gonna to have to be the one to, to pull it together. And luckily, um, the ABA dispute resolution section was very interested in sponsoring it. So I, I was pleased about that. And um, I really didn't know who else would be interested, except for Sue, I knew Sue would be. Um, but um, put out the word to see if there were other people who were interested in coming on. and there were a number of people who, who um, showed up and did a lot of work. And we had everything from um, agency people, academics, mediators, of course, attorneys, social workers, nurses, guardians at litem, and even the head of a state program on dispute resolution who, who came in. Um, and at various times for various particular needs, we had other um, experts. Who came onto the task force um, so we've been working on this for uh, close to three years um, and I, I'm just so thrilled that it came together and that that we have a document that we want people to look at and to try um, with a questionnaire and and sort of guidelines for how to approach it so um, this has been a real dream of mine uh, I'm very happy that it's that it's Finally, happening.
0: Um, how about for Shanika, Sue, and Monica? How did you all get involved in the task force?
1: I'll go. So, actually, at my initial training, um, Zena put it out at the end of one of our trainings that if anyone was interested in being a part of the task force, and so I signed up. Um, I was new to mediation, and I thought this would be a just a great way of kind of being in the midst of some seasoned mediators that kind of earn my stripes a little bit, so.
3: I was, um, my very first job was working in a shelter for domestic violence survivors. And so I've been interested in um, coercion and control from the beginning of time.
2: (laughs) And I'm a member of the Pikes Peak, uh, Elder Abuse Coalition and I also mediate restraining orders for the DA's office and so I'm just really in the mix of it and so I really want to help elders and make sure that mediation is done appropriately and I just think it's a needed area.
0: Well it's certainly a a great cause and um, I'm sure a lot of the mediators working with uh, with elders really appreciate your hard work. Um, just for a moment, I want to take a step back and ask a question that I'm sure is obvious to all of you, but just to guide our listeners a little bit. Um, so, what what was kind of the impetus for the creation of the guidelines? What what need or um, what need do you or role do you see them filling?
3: So. I think that many mediators um, want to know if it's okay to mediate this case and being halfway through a mediation is kind of late. And so to have screening beforehand in every single case, if you screen people um, in a private meeting, ask them a series of questions, then it's possible to know if you should mediate and if you're gonna mediate, how you're going to make accommodations or modifications
4: for everyone's safety. So if I could add to that, um, one of the questions that Sue is alluding to is um, whether it's safe for people to be in a mediation with the other people who are there, um, whether they're gonna be intimidated or coerced, um, whether they can reach a voluntary agreement. And these are basic tenets of mediation. But the only way that we can actually find out is to ask. Um, And so many of us have been trying to ask those questions, but cobbling them from questionnaires, either from the family law arena or from um, guidance from the medical field or the social work field on elder abuse screening. And they never quite fit. So trying to find a series of questions and an approach that was specific to elder mediators was, was really our goal.
1: And then also drawing focus back to that older adult, you know, that becomes the central point um, in all of this.
0: And I, I kind of only have a, a big picture view, but it seems like the unfortunate fact is that um, elders are uh, particularly at risk for, you know, abuse, neglect, and exploitation. And the guide, kind of the underlying purpose of the guidelines is to allow mediators to kind of fulfill this ethical duty to ensure that you know, any settlement reached or the proceedings of the mediation are voluntary and that the participants all have um, the ability to participate knowingly and willingly. Is that kind of the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the big picture kind of overview of a lot of this?
4: Right, that's really that's really the foundation, absolutely.
3: And that the allegations are taken seriously without losing our neutrality.
0: Yeah, I know that's a, a really important concern for a lot of mediators is um, ensuring that the participants are all there uh, knowingly and willingly and being pr- uh, active participants, but also maintaining, um, you know, their role as a, as a neutral. So I think it's a, a, it's a, at times it may be a difficult line to walk, but I think the guidelines do a, a great deal to help uh, mediators navigate that, that line.
4: That's definitely the hope.
0: Yeah. Uh, so getting, getting a little bit more into the, the nitty gritty or the procedure of the guidelines. So would you mind walking me through a little bit of the, the process for um, screening, I think specifically for abuse, neglect, and exploitation in the elder context?
3: So um, when we make contact with people or they make contact with us, we let them know that we'd like to have some private time to talk to them about their concerns and about mediation and to see if there's a good fit, if mediation can go forward. And so it's, first of all, knowing that you're going to do the screening in every single case, every case, every case, and um, that meeting separately. Now, for the elder who may have diminished capacity, this becomes a bit tricky. Um, So how to have um, access to the elder and make it comfortable and safe for the elder at the beginning, and then there needs to be a time when it's private. So both um, building relationships and then separating out so that you can hear the concerns without others listening in or providing guidance to an answer. So we let people know that the conversation is confidential unless the safety risk is, um, is brought up, then we need to talk about reporting. And so every mediator beforehand needs to know what their state law is, what the mandated reporting is, and um, what agency to report to, and what they need to report. But as much as possible, it's a conversation with people about their concerns. That should be no different than in any mediation.
0: Sure. Um, so I want to hear from everyone else. But I had a I had a quick question. Uh, so you said the mediators need to keep in mind to do this. You know, in every case, do you mean? 100% of the cases they mediate? Yes. So it's not just when you have an elder as a party, but consistently.
3: So for, from my perspective, you need to do screening in 100% of the cases. Okay. And this tool is if an elder is a party.
0: Okay. So you do you uh, general screening for every party, but if you identify that an elder is a party, then that's when you apply the guidelines.
3: The guidelines are set for... When the, an elder is a party but screening for abuse and mistreatment is necessary for my opinion in every mediation right. okay. or, or generally for safety i would say of course
0: yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah and accommodations so finding out what people need in order to make it possible for them to participate to their fullest capacity
1: and to add to that and so that assessment um, is ongoing so that information that you gather in that pre-meeting that initial meeting you're building on um, as you continue to meet with the party so it's just important to note that um, that assessment
4: happens throughout the whole process
1: right
4: and, and i would add that that in the separate meetings that we have with parties whether elder mediation or others that there's so much more that we get from those separate meetings, so much more of the understanding of the context, so much more of the rapport building, just in those initial separate meetings that um, I would encourage um, any mediator to, to start to do those initial separate meetings for many, many reasons.
0: Yes. I, I think more and more in um, guidelines and teaching tools that, you know, outline your, the initial contact between the mediator and the parties, I'm seeing that more and more and having it kind of the screening aspects fleshed out more and more and it's becoming you know more comprehensive more in-depth um and i think that's a great thing because a lot of times it may not be apparent in a, in a situation that you need to take that extra step um, so i think it's a great development that it's becoming more standardized and that it's become more of a you know it built into every mediator's toolbox to go through that screening process initially I think that's a great benefit to have. Um, and last on that note, as just came to mind, do you foresee this kind of getting um, beyond the elder context and developing more standardized screening guidelines in you know, either generally in every context or um, in specific different instances? Do you think that's a future project down the road?
4: I think that's that's something that that the organizations are looking at as well as mediators is, is screening for safety in, in every context. And I think one of the questions is, how specific do the uh, does the screening need to be to the context of the mediation? And certainly for um, family mediation and for elder mediation, it does need to be pretty specific. Um, and I know that, that there are groups that are looking at civil mediation, for example, and um, can there be a more generalized safety screening for that.
0: So you mentioned um, the need for specificity in the elder context. Um, so one thing I'd like to do is kind of walk through the guidelines a little bit and kind of go over the different components and kind of flesh out a little bit on how, you know a mediator going into a mediation would you know, apply the guidelines to a particular uh, scenario.
2: Well, I'd like to kind of address risk factors, first of all, because risk factors need to be known by every elder care mediator screening. And some of those risk factors that we see that are research-based or evidence-based practice uh, criteria um, are like a woman over age 80. Uh, Women that are over age 80 are two to three times likely to be more vulnerable to abuse. Also, if you have a family member that's controlling finances or living with the elder and being dependent upon the elder, those are very much contributors towards elder abuse. There are things that tend to increase the stress or the complexity of the elder's care. So any history of violent relationships where there's power or control, maybe even bullying, if there's weapons in the home, if uh, the caregiver is financially dependent upon the person, if there's drug abuse. I had a case where um, the older daughter was the power of attorney. And all of a sudden the younger daughter started living with the mom and she got the power of attorney changed to her. And she also had been in rehabilitation facilities several times due to drugs. And she didn't have a job. She was financially dependent upon the mother And so these are what we call risk factors and all mediators should be aware of them. And then we actually have the screening tool. And uh, We have divided the screening tool into two categories. And we have orange indicators, which is maybe um, something that kind of catches your attention that abuse may be going on and then we have red signs or red indicators that maybe indicate you should take further action as referral and just to give you an example let's say there are uh, many categories that we have of abuse we have Physical abuse, we have sexual abuse, we have abuse um, uh, with financial exploitation. There's also abandonment and neglect and self-neglect, and then psychological abuse. So let's just take one of the categories like physical abuse. You may notice when you're talking with the elder that she seems or he seems scared maybe over sedated maybe they have unexplained bruising but you notice it's not on pressure points like elbows or knees and so you need to go further these are orange indicators so you need more exploration and then you'd consider looking further maybe talking to other family members, um, or maybe even a neighbor would report where the elder says she was threatened by a family member or maybe uh, she was slapped. So then you look at, you know, what are people saying and does it indicate uh, a more serious situation and being a red indicator, then you might make a referral. So the screening tools are based on, first of all, orange indicators that are kind of sending a signal to explore more. And then you have the red signs, signs which say there's strong indication and you might want to make a referral.
0: So one thing you mentioned that I kind of want to follow up on just a little bit, you mentioned that there are psychological indicators um, right. Could you uh, um, give a couple examples of the psychological indicators? Because uh, I think those might be, um, and absolutely correct me if I'm wrong, uh, maybe a little more subtle and difficult to detect mm-hmm. um, than you know bruising or something, uh, you know, a physical issue.
2: Yes, when you're talking with the elder or maybe another family member, could be a, also a friend, a neighbor, they might say, well, there's a lot of yelling and fighting going on when I'm in their home. Everybody's arguing with other with each other. Maybe the elder is reserved and quiet, even cheerful, depressed, maybe has a flat affect, and maybe they're expressing that someone's failed to meet their needs, but they seem to see seem to display that there's mistrust maybe of a caregiver. Those are all kind of what we call those orange indicators. And so you need more exploration. And so then when you actually hear from another person how maybe the elder's been treated, maybe uh, the elder says, oh, I can never do anything right. And maybe there's a lot of disparaging remarks. My son says I'm good for nothing. And so those are more red signs when they maybe even say they fear their caregiver, their family member, then those are times that psychological abuse could be occurring. And know that we're not diagnosing this or we're not saying abuse is occurring we just suspect that it may be, and we need a professional involved to make that conclusion.
0: And that's, that's a very important point. It's that you're not diagnosing, you're not uh, making a final conclusion, but it's interesting to see how you know, relatively, sometimes in the very subtle uh, factors or um, you know, things you, you know, may notice but kind of write off. Those can lead to you uncovering something that is uh, more troubling, and that's I, I see that as one of the purposes of the guideline to initiate that second level of questioning that you know really drills down to see if there is an issue going on.
1: Exactly. Zena and Sue talked earlier about the importance of building the relationship, and that relationship offers kind of that safe space, you know, for the mediator to ask those exploratory questions. And so that relationship, that rapport building becomes essential when we're trying to gather more information, you know, just ensuring that 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 elder, the older person has a safe space to really um, kind of um, answer those questions
4: um, in a safe way. And Shanika do you want to talk more about the actual questions?
1: Sure, and so um, the tool, um, separated the questions so there are some questions for family members and then there are some questions for the older adult and so for the family members and others um, you just wanted to just kind of get some information about the well-being you know what is the housing situation like Um, are the needs being taken care of um, as reported by the family members or those in connection with the older adult you know what are the relationships Um, that that older adults involved in, describe those relationships. Um, You want to inquire about healthcare needs, you know, um, are there any recent hospital visits, ER visits, um, or is is the older adult um, maintaining medical appointments? And is there continuity of care? Meaning if there was a medical appointment and there needed to be a follow-up appointment, are those things happening on behalf of the older person? Um, And so, Quality of life is another area. You know, We always think about medical needs, housing needs, but quality of life is important. So social aspects, You know, what areas um, of the elders, of the older person's social life um, are they involved in? Um, do they have access to those activities? When was the last time they were involved in those areas? And so you're looking at all the domains of that older um, adult's life. So not just medical, not just housing, but every dimension that impacts that older adult. And you're asking those questions to kind of gather and explore further.
0: Kind of a holistic overview.
1: Absolutely, and so finances, you know, um, are you, do you have access to medication? Do you have access to your account? If you have needs, who takes care of those needs for you? Um, Is there a time where those needs aren't met? Um, Just those probing questions kind of generate a bigger picture the mediator.
3: I'd like to add to what Shanika is saying is that in general, we talk to the family members and others first. First of all, they're usually the ones that are contacting us first, so we get their perspective. They tend to be very willing to talk about what's going on in the family from their perspective. And by gathering information from all the different players that then when we talk to the um, older person who is generally the last person we talk to, we have a better sense of what the situation is. And we can pinpoint the questions that we need to ask them to get more information about the most likely concerns.
2: So then we move to talking to the elder. And again, it's, uh, very person-centered and we often want to start by building that strong relationship with the elder because sometimes they're fearful sometimes they minimize situations so we have to make them feel comfortable and we start out sometimes with very generic questions like we might just see something in their room and uh, a picture of a man fishing and say, oh, who is this? You know, And get, get them to feel comfortable in talking to us. Build that relationship. And then um, we want to start with very much general questions and then follow up very closely. So uh, after talking with them, maybe, how are you doing? How's your care going? What's the day like for you? Um, maybe they'll say oh my hip is acting out and we might just follow closely how long has that been going on oh for a, for at least a month now and uh well how did that happen follow very closely well i was trying to get the phone but i couldn't reach it well where was your phone oh up on the top shelf and i had to use a step stool well um, and my son must have been in a hurry and just left it up there. And then maybe asking, well, have you seen a doctor? Has your a doctor seen your hip? Oh, my son's so busy. He said he'd get to it soon. So just by um, making them feel comfortable, letting them lead the conversation, but following very closely on everything they say, we can get a lot of information. And again, the same questions that Shanika was talking about, and looking at all the different areas care, self care, well being, finances, their physical comfort and safety, just hitting all those areas and asking very open, non threatening, grilling questions at first, and letting them feel comfortable to tell us as much as they can and then getting more specific and close and then maybe asking uh, a closed question in the end. Has anyone harmed you? Uh, You know, being more direct at the end of your questioning and then always asking that big open question at the very end. Is there anything more you'd like to share with me Mm -hmm. about your care, your finances?
0: Yeah, and that That seems like a great way to kind of build a rapport and build trust, um, which I think is ultimately necessary. I know very rarely would you walk into a room and say, is there any abuse going on and have someone say, well, actually, yes, yes, there is. (laughs) So it's important to have something where you can get down to the real, real issues there instead of, you know, just a, you know, I ask the question check a box and we move on. But I think that's really important.
4: And we were hoping to build the questionnaires in, in such a way that um, for somebody who's just entering the field of elder mediation, they, they would really have a pathway um, right. go in to, to be successful in their screening. Um, and we know that there are people who are very experienced in this field who may not need that same pathway, but we wanted to make sure that, that it was really accessible for those people who are just beginning or just beginning in this particular area. And it's a reminder
2: for
0: all of us. So if you do go through the screening tool and you do identify something of significant concern, what action should the mediator take?
3: That's a great question, Adam. And there's really a number of steps that the mediator needs to do. One is to consider not mediating. So if there's um, coercive power, then certainly we're not going to mediate. But I think oftentimes there's that in between, I'm not certain. And so it's important to just consider, is this a case appropriate for mediation or not? Or there may have been risk factors or Things that you caught out of the corner of your eye, at the edges, and there's a rationale for it, but maybe, maybe not. So then you have to think about how can I continue with the mediation and just keep alert, as Shanika said earlier, screening is ongoing. So as we work with people that we may start seeing a pattern or we may start putting two and two together differently than we did in the past. And then if you decide that mediation is appropriate, the first question is, are there accommodations that are needed to make it safe, comfortable, and accessible for people? So do we need to meet in the elder's home? Do we need to to meet in separate rooms figuratively or like in Zoom separate or even at separate times so they don't see each other? And then um, that's also about the process. How are we making those modifications to create a quality process for this particular situation? And always err on the side of caution. And then letting safety be the topic of the mediation. So for example, um, that part of what you're gonna be mediating is the safety measures if that um, person is to remain in the house or if they, are to visit what safety measures would be put in place and hopefully um, the elder can be a part of that decision making as i said there may be capacity concerns um, so we we need to just take the elder's perspective into account and then the last piece um, is deciding to terminate and whenever you terminate you need to do it in a safe manner meaning that we don't talk about abuse as being the reason that we find some benign reason, like I don't think mediation will be successful in your case or uh, I've got a scheduling glitch, I'll get back to you. And you get some consultation before you uh, get back to them and make a determination about what's next. So
4: I, I think um, the, the whole idea of it is, is really to, to look at, can, should this be mediated? Can it be mediated safely? Um, what are the options for process and then um, if it can't how can it be terminated also safely
0: in the case where it can't be terminated safely are there certain scenarios where the mediator should take additional steps um, in terms of reporting it yes i see i see some nodding (laughs) yes
3: so again the, the mediator needs to know what the reporting laws and agencies are in their area and Determine who to report to, and I also think consultation is very helpful in these cases. So talking to a more experienced mediator.
0: Right. So in the, I think we alluded to this earlier, but in the the converse scenario where the mediator has some concerns but ultimately determines that the mediation, you know, can go forward, um, how does the mediator deal with you know any kind of issues regarding uh, questions of neutrality? So, if the mediator has an, enough concerns that uh, the mediator thinks accommodation should be made, you know, is it difficult uh, to determine when you know an accommodation might turn into you know, advocacy for a party? And is there any um, issues with the mediator being in neutral in that kind of scenario?
3: Let me be clear about accommodations are usually like larger print, where you meet. Um, it may be having a pet there so that they feel more comfortable. So the accommodations are are more like that. So we're really talking about modifications to the process. So what needs to be done to make this a quality safe process where people can feel comfortable having the discussion? If they're not going to be comfortable having the discussion, do we need to bring in um, attorneys or advocates? Do we need to... Um, meet at separate times? Do we need to um, not mediate at all? So it's a lot of questions.
2: I think that, that sometimes gets confused. For me, when we're mediating elder care, there's a hierarchical goal of what is quality life for the elder? And just like when you're doing divorce, dissolution, and they have minor children, You have a hierarchical goal of what is in the best interests of the children. So it's not that you're advocating, it's a hierarchical goal that everyone is working towards because the senior is the center, the person at the center of this mediation. And her interests or his, his or her interests, needs, wants, concerns, desires, fears, are what are being dr- addressed, so that they can have the best quality of life, and that has nothing to do with being impartial. That's a hierarchical
4: goal. Yeah, I think it sometimes with with um, divorce and family mediation, you think of child-centered quote unquote mediation, and this is this is elder-centered mediation. But I think you're correct that we can't go to the extent of advocating for the senior. What we need to do is to make sure that in the mediation itself, there are people there who are doing that advocacy. And so part of our responsibility is making sure that the right people are there. Um, maybe a guardian at litem is important uh, or a, a representative uh, of, for the uh, older person. Um, And that may be true for family members and others as well, agency people. So part of our responsibility is making sure that those people who can advocate are there because we can't.
2: Another example would be an ombudsman in a long-term care facility. They advocate for the elders.
4: Because I think one of the issues um, that that we were all mentioning is the safety and the quality of life of the older adult um, well usually everyone in the room is interested in that they just have a different idea right what's going to achieve it so um, the conversation then is about how do we figure out what's in the best interest of that person and so experts may be helpful um, discussion may be helpful and of course the opinion of the older adult themselves um, is really important but the goal as Monica was mentioning, is always what what is in the best interests of that older adult, but um, making sure that the conversation is a complete conversation around that issue is is part of what our responsibility is.
0: So the guidelines are incredible. They're a great tool, and I think it's something every mediator should um, take advantage of. Um, It goes without saying that if you're in the, Elder mediation field. You should, you know, have these in front of you, you know, whenever you have a, a mediation. Um, but I, I'm sure there's still more that can be done. So I wanted to pose to you, uh, what are the next steps? You know, what's next on your agenda and for the community at large?
4: Well, and I think you put that exactly right, Adam. That that there's lots more to be done. So um, this is this is our attempt. To, to put out kind of a first version of it. Um, we really need feedback, from people who are using it, people who are looking at it, what are their concerns? And we need people to use it um, and to see whether it works, uh, whether there are things that don't work that are in it, things that need to be added to it, is the way we set it up the best way? And I think our vision is that it will go through many different iterations um, over the years um, and And that what we are doing is sort of getting that started getting the conversation started, so uh, we know that the dispute resolution section is going to uh, have it up on their website um, it isn't quite there yet but but that's um, that will happen soon, and we're hoping that other organizations will put it on their website as well so that it will be accessible um, to as many uh, people as possible so for, uh, from our point of view, the next steps are that it get used and that we get a lot of feedback on it and that either we or um, local organizations or state organizations or other national organizations begin to make changes in it that that makes sense um, to them.
0: Well, it certainly seems like an invaluable tool. And I think the important thing is getting it into the hands of the uh, the people that need to be using it. Um, but I. I think anyone that reads the guidelines is going to appreciate how valuable they are. Well, thank you. Thank you all so much for taking the time to talk with me today. You know, as we've said throughout, the guidelines are an immensely valuable tool that every mediator, I I think every mediator should look at them um, because as we discussed earlier, you know, this uh, screening process at the beginning of a mediation is certainly necessary. And I think they're informative no matter, you know, what area uh, you're mediating in. But particularly if you're an elder mediator, uh, I think the guidelines are essential. Um, So we're going to post a link um, to the guidelines, the final version. Um, And listeners can access those in the ABA websites. um, And there should be a link in the podcast description as well. Um, And I highly, highly recommend everyone to to read through and familiarize yourself with the guidelines. Um, They're just extremely well done. because there is a great task force uh, behind them, uh, coming up with them and um, crystallizing them into uh, written guidelines, so.
4: Thank you so much for for having us. Uh, this is our first venture in making it public, so we really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, well, it was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, it's been a great episode and thank you all for having this little mini round table with me.
3: <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, yeah. thank you.
0: And listeners, thank you for tuning in this week, and we'll see you soon for another episode of Resolution.